Hi, I'm Rachel Cook, your modern mentor. Have you ever wanted career advice? Like how to self-promote at work and not feel gross about it? How to make the peer-to-boss transition? Or how to make a big career change? On my podcast, you can find honest and straightforward advice on how to craft a workplace experience that you can feel good about. Listen to Modern Mentor on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now. The first thing is that the business doesn't always want to make a lot of profit. And so mm. there is this natural tension there that happens between investing heavily and maximizing profits. Mm-hmm. Um, and the team really, there are people who are like, mm, is this going to work? Can you guarantee that this is going to work? And I'm like, no, I, I can't. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I for sure cannot. Man. I can't guarantee it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everybody. We are also joined today by Nathan Barry, the founder and CEO of ConvertKit, which offers email marketing for creators. Nathan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. On uh, today's episode, we want to talk about the compensation field of the organizational operating system, and in particular, profit sharing. But before we dig into all that funny money stuff, um, we have to check in because we always check in. We must and we will. So let's do it. (laughs) And Nathan gets to play, which is exciting. Uh, The check-in round question for today will be share one way in which you are difficult to work with and one way in which you are easy to work with. Aaron, why don't you kick us off? (laughs) so um let's see i think i'll start with easy and then go to difficult so i think the easy thing to work with me on is that i'm generally like a pretty happy-go-lucky guy i think i try to show up with a positive attitude to everything and as a result maybe that you know softens the blow of having to do hard work or having to deal with hard stuff um on the other hand i think i'm very i'm i'm very detail-oriented and i can be very critical so i think sometimes those two things go together and create a weird tension where it's like, I'm having fun. I'm in a really good, I have a good attitude, but I'm obviously noticing something that I'm not psyched about. So those are my, those are my two for today. Right on. Nathan, what about you? Oh, I'd say, um, on the easy to work with side, I don't know, just maybe kind of the same as you, Aaron, of being pretty casual. Um, I'm mostly just focused on getting, getting the work done. I don't really care about process or some of those details. Um, so we get a lot done and have a good time. Uh, and the difficult to work with, I would say, and I'm working on this a lot, uh, my, <laughs> my communication style. So sometimes people will be like, here's what I'm thinking, blah, blah, blah. You know, here's this, this detailed post or thoughts. And I'd be like, yeah, it won't work because of this. <laughs> and like just really succinct responses, you know, I'll respond in Slack while I'm on my, on my phone and you know, and then someone will just be crushed that I like. All the air goes out of the balloon. Yeah, I just shut down their their idea. You know, they put four hours into into their pitch and their research and everything, and I put four seconds into yeah. my response. You're like hard pass. <laughs> no <Yeah>. bueno. <laughs> yeah. right. And so um, I really got to work on that. Nice. Um, for me, uh, I think what makes me easy to work with is that I um, do have a good sense of humor and uh, mm. I am fun and funny, I am told. And also <laughs> I know that because people laugh all the time when they're around me. Um, and so I think that makes it easy because even in like dark times, I tend to sort of have like foxhole sense of humor uh, to keep it light and uh, 
in perspective that, you know, we are consultants, not triage surgeons. Um, (laughs) On the difficulty, like, I mean, there's so many things that make me difficult to work with. But one of them that I'm uh, also working on is I, um, I tend to be like quite focused and uh, that can be to the exclusion of things and can also lead to burnout that I'm not totally aware of. And when mm. I'm redlining, I get like impatient and, uh, you know, just like I'm kind of an asshole. And testy. so uh, I'm testy, but like it's it's the problem with the testiness is that I'm not aware of it in the moment mm. and where it comes from. So, um, you know, my closest conspirators will be like, what is the matter with you? <laughs> and then and then I'm aware of what's going on. So. Um, all right. Fun check-in. So Nathan, we're super excited to have you here uh, to talk about how you do things at ConvertKit. I'd love to start by asking you to just tell us a bit about your company. Uh, tell us a bit about the new free version that you're launching. Just, uh, you know, give us give us the overview. Yeah. So I've been working at ConvertKit for seven years now. Started in January 2013. Rock and uh, roll. Yeah, we are... A totally remote company. We're bootstrapped, um, so we've never raised any outside capital. Uh, we're very public and transparent about everything. So uh, we do twenty million a year in revenue. We've got twenty eight thousand uh, paid customers, and then we also have this uh, free plan that we came out with a couple months ago. That has uh, actually today. I'm hoping to pass thirty thousand free users. Wow. So like Good timing it. on that. Good timing on the free yeah. version. Um, that's definitely worked out well. We. We had this plan to launch a free version before uh, the next recession. We launched it January 1st and... Um, pandemic. <laughs> and then pandemic. So well time that a little closer than I meant to. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so basically what ConvertKit does is provides, you know, email marketing services, you know, the, the software. So we compete with tools like MailChimp and all of that, but specifically for creators. So everybody ranging from someone starting a new podcast uh, up to... Um, Everyone ranging from authors like Gretchen Rubin to Tim Ferriss to musicians mm. like Tim Tim McGraw and and plenty others. So wow, that's right, the tool. Cool. And then um, you know we just try to run a pretty unique company and and follow our own path rather than whatever the business best practices are. Well, and along those lines, which is how I discovered you. So I was I was you know reading through my my tweets as I do every day, and up comes this tweet from a software company that's like, well, we just finished our retreat and we're doing our, you know, normal profit sharing now. And we give away, you know, 50% of the profit in the company to the people that work here. And I was just like, wait, what now? Um, And so I was curious if you could just tell us a little bit about that, uh, that practice, that approach to profit sharing, where it came from, uh, maybe how it's morphed and changed and what it looks like today. Yeah. So we've been doing profit sharing um, for I guess three or four years now. Um, once we got to actually having profit, which mm-hmm. the first <laughs> important bunch of step, you, yeah, step one, get profit. Step two, you know, share it, share profit, um, exactly. So take notes, with, folks. The formula that we, that we have now, well, I guess the starting with the philosophy. My thinking has always been that I want, as a team, all of us to be in it together, mm-hmm. and one of. Um, my core goals in the company and actually our mission for the company is we exist to help creators earn a living mm-hmm. and we serve all these creators who are earning a fantastic living from their work, right? They'll, they're doing course launches. They're building an audience to oh, 50,000 people and, and they're able to make, you know, not just a hundred thousand dollars, but plenty of our customers are making, you know, uh, like doctor level salaries from a <laughs> blog or a podcast or that kind of thing. 
And I look at my team and they've chosen to build the tools to enable this. And I believe that they should be able to make just as much as if they were, you know, one of these independent successful creators. And so like, we'll have stories of someone doing a product launch and making $10,000 in a day from that product launch. And I don't want my team looking at that and going, Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Mm -hmm. Instead, I want them to feel like, um, they inside the company have a path to financial independence and that they are, um, building this, you know, they're building their own wealth inside ConvertKit while they're also building the tools to enable, you know, tens of thousands of people to do the same. Yeah. So we needed to come up with a compensation system that enabled that. And so there's kind of two aspects of it. One is that we tried to, to uh, build the company with the smallest possible or the smallest team that's reasonably possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we run about $400,000 in revenue per team member, um, which is pretty high. That's There's great. Company, yeah. Companies like Craigslist and others that are much higher, but um, <laughs> we're working to uh, bump that up. And uh, then the other thing is, as you mentioned, we distribute 50% of the profit in the company. It's actually 52% um, to the team. And so what that ends up doing is aligning everybody. So everyone spends money as if it's their own. So mm-hmm. on a, one of my favorite examples of this, I'll give two examples. One was with our web hosting. You know, we spend a ton of money on servers every month. Um, and we were playing around with something, testing out some new servers on uh, Amazon Web Services. And somebody left that one of those servers on and it ended up costing like almost $2,000 by the time somebody noticed. And it was like $2,000 or yeah, 2000 out of an $80,000 bill. So it's not mm-hmm. that big of a deal. It's not catastrophic. Yeah, but not great. But still, it's it's too grand. And the response from other members of the engineering team was like, "Hey, man, like let's not do that again. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's fine. But that's our money. Please treat it that way." And that was just how everybody approaches it. Like another example, nice is we we're doing our team retreat, and uh, we had done them in Oceanside, California, just north of San Diego, um, for a few years, and we priced out going to Costa Rica. And based on flights and locations, it was going to cost. Um, about 50% more. And so we just put it to the team. Do you want to go to this, you know, Costa Rica or San Diego? And they're like, Costa Rica, that'd be amazing. And then we showed all the numbers and they're like, nope, San Diego's great. Let's go there. Mm-hmm. Because they made the decision as though it was their own money. Because um, it is. And so if we run through some of the numbers from from that tweet, we've done profit sharing. Um, let's see, how many times is that? Six times, eight times? Um, and we had our highest this last time. Uh, which was five hundred fifty thousand dollars distributed to the team, and that came out to an average of eleven thousand four hundred dollars per team member. Um, nice. And our total now is uh, five hundred fifty thousand. Oh, sorry, our total uh, to the whole company over all of these is one point eight million. Wow. And and so that's is that a once a year move? It's twice a year. Twice a year move, right? Okay. Yeah. So we do team retreats basically every summer and winter. Um, okay. We want to kind of have that six month cadence and we have this really fun, uh, we always kick team retreats start on a Sunday evening and we, we always do this in person and we, and we kick off just by celebrating everything that we've, uh, gotten done and individual team members who have done amazing work over the, the previous six months. And so just like really celebrating those wins. And then after that we have uh, profit sharing cards that go, you know, uh, the leadership, uh, hand out to everyone in the team. And so then everybody opens those cards and it has your profit sharing amount um, in there. And one cool thing is that the formula is totally uh, transparent, mm-hmm. right? So we run open books within the company. Um, 
actually all of our financials are public to the world uh, at convertkit.bearmetrics.com if you want to check out like what our revenue is doing right this minute. Um, but you know, within the team, we have open books. And so you can see, okay, this is what profit is. And you can see profit for distribution um, and then know the percentage of that. And then as that pool, that 52% gets distributed to the team, um, 25% of it is based on time with the company. So mm-hmm. just the total Tenure. number of days in the company, you know, get divided up. Um, and then 75% is just uh, totally equal for being a member of the team. And so we don't factor in salary or performance or those sort of things because the expectation is that, you know, you're already delivering at a high level. And um, so one nice thing about that, right, is if you're sitting next to somebody as you're opening your profit sharing card, um, you don't have to like hold it close to your chest. Right. Right. Because they can see and they can figure it out and you already know. Everybody already knows. And you can see, yep, I should get more than this person next to me because I started two weeks before they did. Right, you right, know, right. And you'd right. expect like, okay, those checks are going to be different by about $175. <laughs> you know, so the like, opening is more of a ritual then than anything. It is. And, uh, but also I have our whole leadership team beforehand. We sit down and we write uh, handwritten notes uh, in those cards to every person on the team. So when you get it, you know, there's not every, there's every manager in the company um, who has written a note to you about, about your work over the last six months and how much they appreciate you. So nice. one of our values is that everyone in the company should feel uh, like known and seen at ConvertKit. And so that's just one small way that we do it. That's awesome. I, I think I read somewhere that at one point you did used to factor performance into profit sharing. Is that right? And why did you guys walk away from that? Yeah, we did. We had this system... Um, and that, that made up that other 75% mm-hmm. where we had sort of a performance scale that went zero to four, basically. Um, the one to three were the commonly used numbers. Mm-hmm. And it was basically how you performed against your goals um, within, you know, over that last six month period. And, and so, you know, one would be underperforming, two would be like you hit the really high bar that was set. And three is, you know, you really exceeded expectations and and you move the company forward in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And I think that system worked pretty well for us, but we, um, it definitely had this feeling of we're all in this together. Um, and that kind of went against it because the mm-hmm. way it was set up, right? We're dividing money from a fixed pool. And so if you did get a three, that meant that you were getting, uh, so, you know, a decent amount more in many cases, four or $5,000 more than somebody who got a two. Sure, sure. And we actually put that decision to the team and they chose to, um, we, we use this decision-making framework, uh, from a company called Coinbase and that, that we love and, uh, you guys should dive into it. We could do whole podcast episodes on that. Uh, <laughs> What's it called? Uh, it, if you just search decision-making framework, Coinbase, uh, you'll come okay. across a great. So it needs a name. We'll work on that next. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe they have one. I don't know. Uh, we call internally it's the DMF, and whenever something comes up, someone goes, "Do we need to? Do we need to DMF this?" Um, so basically, we followed that process, and the team said we might want to change this, or we might want to mm-hmm. revisit it. And the conclusion that they came to following that process was that we're all in this together, and we want to win and lose together, and we don't want to be scored individually. Um, I love that. And so, you know what? What that's meant is that we follow a pretty strict 
Like if someone is underperforming and we can't coach them up to the point where they're performing well, then, then we let them go. And then mm-hmm. the expectation is that everyone else who's there, um, is doing really great work. And, you know, if someone is having an off week or an off month, that's fine. We're collectively as a team going to carry that work, you know, uh, like carry them for that period of time with the expectation that there'll be some point in the future where, you know, they're the ones that are really hitting their stride and, and Mm -hmm. things forward. I love that. I, I also think there's something about that that feels very like complexity conscious to me because in just making it simple, like the formula, the fact that it is not really contingent on additional data points like performance, the fact that it's not, which people might not recognize, it's not in any way contingent on like a percentage of base salary or how much you're earning in your role. Like it all just seems like you've made a decision to make this simple and kind of assume that it like comes out in the wash rather than trying to create complication for a lot of different scenarios or variances. Does that, is that sort of how you guys have thought about this? Yeah, that's exactly right. Cause I think that it can get so complicated and then it can mm-hmm. turn into this thing of like, well, this person got a higher performance score than I did. Um, you know, but I did this other project, you're not valuing it properly and all of this. And instead it just aligns us around, the core metrics of how are we growing the business, how are we taking care of customers, and then uh, how are we, you know, making profit along the way. So I have a question, profit sharer to profit sharer, um, because the the most sort of complex part of this process for us has always been, you know, how much profit that's shareable really is there? Because you can look at what's on the PL and that tells you one story, but then there's what you actually have in terms of cash on hand. And then how you make estimates about what you're going to need to, you know, continue mm-hmm. operations, et cetera, and invest, et cetera. How did you decide what percentage of profit, quote unquote, to invest? And how do you actually calculate that? Like, is that based on the P&L? Is it based on cash on hand? How have you approached that sort of technical aspect of it? Yeah, so we basically, um, we have profit as it comes out of the P&L. Uh, and then that goes a few different places. At one point, we were doing a major equity buyback from... Mm-hmm. Uh, past co-founder. And so that was getting taken out after the profit line. Um, what else? Uh, we do quite a bit of uh, charitable giving. There's a few organizations that we we support um, with pretty significant amounts of money. And so that comes out later. And then taxes, mm-hmm. uh, right? Because taxes are a portion of that. And then savings. So those are kind of the four buckets that come out after the standard. Okay. Um, like here's how much profit you had. Mm-hmm. And then from there, whatever's left after those is profit for distribution. Got it. And so the amount of money that we're saving, um, which we, at one point we were saving pretty aggressively trying to get to, uh, you know, well over three months of expenses in the bank. Mm-hmm. Now we've got that and we basically like tapered off our savings. We've got right. it, um, just under 6 million in cash on hand. Um, and we just decided like, that's good. There's no, yeah, you can just run we, lean against that. Yeah. And so we'll distribute the rest. Um, and then, and funny enough, we're an LLC and so everything's passed through. And so right. when we stop, when we stop saving, then we actually pay a lot less in taxes because mm-hmm. the weird thing is when you're trying to save up this balance, you're having to pay taxes on the money yeah, you're leaving at, in the business. At the sort of max rate. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, taxes and savings have both decreased. We also finished paying off all of our debt. And so now, you know, the bulk of it is flowing through into that profit distribution. Um, and that then, makes sense. And that does go into three different buckets. 
So 40% of it is distributed to owners, um, in which I own the majority of the company, a little over 90%. Um, and then 8% is set aside in a pool for the leadership team for okay. uh, performance-based compensation. So if they hit certain like uh, aggressive growth targets, um, profit targets, things like that, they have the most control over it. And so we give them this extra uh, bonus on top of that. But it's that is very tied to uh, maintaining growth rates and, and profit margins uh, for them. And then that last 52% is the uh, the bucket for the team. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. And I guess because you're a, effectively a SaaS business, you know, cash on hand and profit on the PL are probably pretty close. <laughs> like it's yeah. all month to month, right? Yeah, they are. And then, you know, when you're on an accrual basis, it all evens out even more. Right, right, right. That makes sense. So Nathan, we've heard a lot about the benefits of this in terms of alignment and, you know, maybe having things be more cooperative and collectivist and less political. Uh, what's the shadow? Cause I feel like there's a shadow in every or right. design choice that we make. What's, what's the one that you've seen here around profit sharing? Yeah. Well, the first thing is that the business doesn't always want to make a lot of profit. And so mm. what do you do when, uh, the, like the business or leadership, um, you know, or myself is saying, actually, we should invest heavily, right? Because there's this point where mm -hmm. you're like, mm -hmm. forget 20% profit margins. Let's run at 50% profit margins. You know, think of all the money we could distribute if that's the case. But if we're thinking holistically, we're like, actually, we want to spend to grow. We want to uh, invest in all of these areas. And so there is this natural tension there that happens between uh, investing heavily and maximizing profits. And so... We just have a really open conversation about that, of saying, these are our profit targets right now. This is what we think we can do. And actually, this year, uh, we changed that. We were basically, end of last year, we were running 18% uh, profit margins, uh, 18 to 20. And mm -hmm. we said, actually, for 2020, we want to invest heavily to grow. We, we believe that you know through bumping up our ad budget, um, launching this free plan, all these other things, we could make we could raise revenue significantly, which will exactly. have a huge impact on profit sharing down the line. So it's like, all right, let's set aside some short-term goals and let's go after long-term goals. Mm -hmm. um, and the team really, there are people who are like, mm, is this going to work? Can you guarantee that this is going to work? And I'm like, no, I, I can't. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I for sure Straight cannot. Off, <laughs> I can't guarantee it. Uh, but, you know, we just talked through it openly as a team and, uh, there's a lot of trust there and there's a lot of understanding that like, okay, it's at least worth trying. And because our revenue is recurring, they know that, okay, we can, we can back this off um, if needed, but let's try it for a year. And so we basically went from, you know, maybe spending 10 or $20,000 a month on advertising and mostly focusing on content marketing and, and those channels to keeping all of our content marketing and channels that have worked, but then bumping it up and spending, you know, about $200,000 a month on, um, brand marketing and these things to really mm. elevate our free plan. And then also being willing to take a hit, right, of on the contraction side. Um, we had a bunch of customers. When we said, here's a free plan, free up to 500 subscribers, uh, we had a bunch of customers who were like, great, I'll do that instead of paying you every month. You know, and so we said, yeah. made a conscious decision, we'll spend our profit to make that happen with the hopes of lowering customer acquisition cost and going from there. 
In some ways, I like those dynamics, though, because I do, you know, you, you always talk about wanting people to think like owners and literally be owners. And those trade-offs are real trade-offs. And like, there's no right answers. And they, you know, it's having more minds on those types of decisions is almost always, you know, kind of a wisdom of the crowd's good thing, as long as you have the right decision-making tools in place to make sure that you can, you know, move forward and make those decisions effectively. So I kind of, yeah, it is like a, it is a bug, but it's also kind of a feature. Yeah, and you have to be transparent with all the information. Like, I think a um, a mistake that a lot of leaders make is they share like ten percent of the total information mm-hmm. they use to make a decision, <laughs> and then people question the decision, and they're like, "What's yeah. wrong with you? It's clearly the right choice." And then you realize, okay, the the amount of information that my team members had to make the decision was a fraction of what I had. No wonder they have questions or doubting whether it's the right choice. I am curious, this is not really a you know, focal point for us today, but I've heard you talk about transparency a lot on this on this podcast. It, was there a source of inspiration for you on that front that you know kind of made the the company decide to go that route? Yeah, there's two aspects of it. One, you know, back when I was first getting started online, I'd read all these articles and people would say, Oh, this did well, or the you know, uh, follow these tips to launch your product. Uh, <laughs> it, it did really well mm-hmm. for me. And go, okay. Um, by the way, quick question. What does well mean? Mm. Did, right. did you make a hundred dollars off of it or did you make $10,000 or a million dollars? Like what? Well, I, I just don't know. And I always wanted people to share specific numbers. Um, cause I felt like that gave context to the advice. Um, and so back when I was, uh, I had a blog about uh, designing iPhone applications and I was going to go write my first book. I was thinking you know, like putting that together. And these two designers named Sasha Grief and Jared Drysdale, who didn't mm-hmm. know each other at all, both happened to come out with uh, ebooks on design on the same day uh, <laughs> and launch them into fairly similar communities. And uh, uh, this other guy who is now a friend of mine, um, Jason Cohen, who runs WP Engine, saw mm-hmm. that happen, saw their very different pricing strategies and, and invited them both to come onto his blog mm. and write guest posts as to how much money they made, why their pricing strategy was good, um, and all of that. Blogs, the podcasts of the early 2000s. (laughs) That's right. And so uh, what I I saw in that is, you know, Jared had done this higher price. I think it was uh, $29 or $39 for his his book. Um, And and he'd made like $9,000 in the first 48 hours off of a small audience. And Sasha had uh, done a really inexpensive price. I think $3 and $6. Mm. And then it bumped up to six and 12 after the promo period was over. Um, you know, based on which package you got and he'd made like $7,000 in the first 48 hours off of very small audiences. And so I saw that and went, Whoa, Mm. I could do this. I could actually make money off of the book that I write. And so seeing them, uh, share their numbers. It gave me like so much uh, confidence and inspiration. It wasn't like some super famous author being like, look, here's how you make $500,000 off of self-publishing a book. I'm like, <laughs> well, yeah, of course you can do it. Um, it was somebody who was like me, uh, but you know, maybe six months or a year ahead. Right. And so I basically said, okay, from now on, I'm going to uh, share all of my numbers and pay it forward. And actually a year later, um, I went back and wrote a guest post for Jason's blog uh, like sharing my numbers and and like my hybrid pressing model uh, between there too. 
Nice. Which leads really nicely into the last thing we wanted to talk about, which is the other elements of compensation. Clearly, there is a lot of transparency baked into your overall comp philosophy. We've dug pretty deep into the profit sharing piece. Tell us about the other uh, components of comp. Yeah. So the biggest one that people pay attention to is salary. And we have a distributed team. So we're um, in, I think, 28 different cities all around the world. And so like that has a huge range in, uh, you know, someone who lives in an expensive city, say the Bay mm-hmm. area versus cost lives of living. In, yeah. Yeah. Slovenia, um, uh, Spain, New Zealand, anywhere else. Right. I happen to live in Boise, Idaho. So I'm one of the, uh, least expensive <laughs> cities in the United States. And we, so we have this team all over the place. And one thing that we decided is that, uh, we basically took equal pay to eat for equal work, uh, to the extreme. So making sure mm-hmm. that we uh, weren't paying people differently based on what they negotiated, based on their gender, based on uh, their location or anything like that. We said, everyone has the same ability to drive the company forward. So we're going to standardize our salaries. And so we bought salary data from a company called Radford mm-hmm. and we normalized it based, uh, based on basically the national average for the United States. Um, and we picked three target cities uh, so I believe Portland, Chicago, and Atlanta that we felt like weren't the most expensive cities by any means, but they helped to average that data um, mm-hmm. into some, you know, more techie cities as well. So it like, cause you don't want it to skew certain job roles. And we basically from that came to our own standardized salaries that we could share within the company. So it's basically like an, an engineer level three gets a salary, uh, engineer level four gets that salary and that's all shared with everybody. Um, and then the other move is that we don't negotiate salaries. So when we are making an offer to someone, we um, do our best to determine based on, you know, from the interview and the technical interview and their job history and everything, what level we believe they are. And we make the offer at that level. And sometimes uh, people really like that and they say, great, I appreciate, you know, not having to do this whole salary negotiation dance. And then there are times where people say, actually, I am in this really expensive city and I can go make $20,000 or, you know, $40,000 more, um, like as an engineer in the Bay area or something like that. Right. So it does limit us in where we can hire from. Um, but it ends up like, there's so much mental energy that gets spent all across companies on, um, should I negotiate Mm -hmm. my salary? Am I being paid fairly? Are they being paid more? How did that happen? (laughs) You know, Uh everything else. And you can just get rid of all of that by just saying, here's the spreadsheet. This is what everyone makes. And then the conversation turns into, okay, well, how do I move from yeah, an account from manager two, two level three, three yeah. to a four and all that. And that is an amazing conversation to have. Like, uh, and we, you know, we make sure to have that conversation in every performance review. It's funny. We had uh, Joel from buffer on the program a little while ago and he was, you know, obviously talking about transparency generally, but it sounds uh-huh. like y'all are in a very similar place on comp. Yeah, exactly. And and they've iterated theirs um, publicly. Totally. Uh, which is great. Now, there's something else on comp that I think about as you kind of blend these different areas. Um, so I think of, and, and this gets into what you were talking about or asking about with like short-term versus long-term thinking. So I mm-hmm. divide comp into two categories, uh, short-term and long-term, and then uh, performance-based and guaranteed. So if you think about that as a little quadrant, right? We have short-term and long-term across the top and then uh, guaranteed and performance-based on the left side. 
then we've got like four squares basically. And so our short term guaranteed is salary, right? That's what mm -hmm. everybody's thinking about. And then our short term performance based is uh, profit sharing. Mm -hmm. So we've got that covered. But then you do those things and and then you're like, wait, why is everyone thinking short term? I don't I don't understand. You know, if that's all you have in your competition <laughs> plan. Uh, so then you get into the long term. And so uh, you have long term guaranteed would be uh, your retirement accounts, right? So your 401k match and all of that, which um, we push people really aggressively on that and say like, okay, especially right now, I just posted something like, hey, Please, if you can, bump up your Take contribution advantage. rates. Yeah, because mm -hmm. the stock market's on sale. Um, mm -hmm. And then you get into uh, long-term performance-based, uh, which is equity. So we don't actually ever plan to sell the company, um, but we have a fund set up within the company to buy back equity and stock options from the team. And so they all have uh, equity in the company. It's something we issued about a year and a half ago. Uh, mm -hmm. And so then when people can think about like they can think of the whole picture um, of, okay, how much profit sharing am I going to get out years from now if we make these changes, hit these growth targets and stay profitable? But then also if we can keep the growth rate high, um, how much value can I grow my equity to? And so everyone is basically covered in all four of those um, quadrants and, uh, and they can think about it holistically and be compensated holistically. Got it. That makes sense. That's an interesting framework. I haven't thought about it that way before. Where did you get that? I think we just made it up. It's probably nice. the combination nice. of a lot of <laughs> a lot of different sources. But I, like I don't actually remember reading that one from anyone else. So probably my if you favorites it, are always the made up ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What I really like about both of those pieces that you both the salary and the sort of uh, quadrant description, Nathan, is. I feel like um, we get into a lot of conversations with clients where like they don't want to make any trade-offs mm. or they want to like, they want to articulate what the downside is or the worst case scenario is. So like when you said the thing about engineers in San Francisco, I feel like in a lot of comp discussions, that's where it ends. Cause it's like, what if we did equal pay? We'll never get talent in San Francisco. Fuck it, let's Game not over. do it. And then like, that's it. <laughs> right. Game over. And so like, I appreciate it. It just, it sounds to me like, as you've thought about this, like you're kind of willing to like take the hits that you know are coming because you know philosophically what you're trying to achieve. And like, I just, I kind of wanted to just like put a fine point on that because uh, it doesn't usually go that way. It usually goes the way of like, well, how does this break bad? Okay, cool. Let's not do it. Let's go back to a way that we also know doesn't really work that well. Um, so I just, I just thought that was cool. And I wondered like, uh, do you guys talk about that? Do you talk about the trade-offs that you make to get philosophically what you're after? Yeah, we do a lot. And, um, you know, the other thing is, so on our standardized salaries, uh, we're paying basically at the 50th percentile right now and our, mm -hmm. you know, for the national average. And as you touched on, that works out really well for some people. And, and for other people, it's, a, it just says like, look, I'd love to join your company, but, um, I can get other, uh, other better offers somewhere else. And so right. one of our goals is to continually to bump that up, to go um, you know, end of this year, we're going to the 60th percentile and then going up to the 70th percentile and, um, and up from there over time. But it, I mean, it has some fairly painful trade-offs, like the number of times that I've been talking to some incredible engineer in New York city, and I'm so excited about bringing her on. 
Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, you have to, at mm. the end of that conversation, you say, look, womp, womp. you know, I'm offering you this position at, at say $140,000, um, which is, it would be a fantastic salary somewhere else. But in New York, yeah, you do have that offer on the table at 175,000 and you should hundred percent take it. Um, <laughs> right. And right, because your rent is four grand a month. And we <laughs> right. Get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then on the flip side, like we have team members um, that have joined us. Uh, like, uh, we have two amazing team members in Slovenia and Slovakia, and they are absolutely thrilled. And uh, it works out really well for them. And on one hand, there'd be the line of thinking that says, like, okay, we should, if we're going to hire uh, in, you know, Eastern Europe or some other less expensive places, we should try to get it at those people as cheaply as possible. And instead we just said, no, we think they have just as much ability to impact and drive the company forward as someone in Boise, as someone in San Diego or Portland or wherever else. And so we should pay them equally. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we do end up with people uh, like we have one team member who um, was here in the States. Now he's in Thailand for a while and that's great with us. We're just measuring things based on, you know, like output and performance and moving the company forward. And he's looking like, this is amazing. My cost of living got cut, you know, down by 75% and we're happy for <laughs> right. it. Right. Hey, you can code from the beach. It can totally. be done. Um, all right. So I think I'm going to try something new for a last question of the show while we're in this kind of moment of pandemic and uncertainty, which is um, what's one piece of advice you have for, for other, you know, founders, leaders, team members out there in this moment as they're navigating, uh, you know, the pandemic and, and the uncertainty in the market, what would you, what's sort of the one piece of advice you might offer folks who are grappling with that? Yeah, I would say to, um, to really lead, like, this is the moment where your team's looking to you. Um, you know, I, I, I know what it feels like to want to be looking to everyone else right now and go, what should we do? Should we pull back? Should we scale back? But I would say, look at, you know, deeply understand your business, how, it's going to be affected. Like how much of your revenue, if you're in the event space, you just got cut down by, uh, like your business almost totally disappeared. (laughs) Um, you know, but then there's other businesses that are going to take a 10% hit or a 30% hit. Um, or maybe even, you know, if you're zoom right now, your market cap is going through the roof. Um, scary high. Yeah. But so like, look at how that is going to affect your business and then figure out what your strategy should be. And then lead decisively from that point. Um, like it's really easy. The analogy that I gave to my team, uh, and I published this uh, publicly. So if you want to read it, at nathanberrycom slash uncertainty and put it in the show notes. Yeah. So we basically at our last team retreat in San Diego, uh, a bunch of us went out surfing and the first day we went surfing, the waves were great. It was easy. The second day they were breaking really hard and it, it was closer to low tide. The water was shallow and you just get these huge waves towering and breaking hard and fast. And you know, you'd have this moment where you realize you're in the wrong spot. Like you're standing there in knee deep water and there's these waves towering. Like I'm six two and they were towering like five or six feet above my Whoa. head. And you know, and so you have this moment where you realize, okay, this isn't one wave coming in. This is a whole set of waves and I'm in the wrong spot. And you can either like, like duck down and cower as wave after wave crashes over you, or you can realize, okay, I need to get myself and my team into a better spot. And you dive, you know, throw the surfboard behind you, dive through the wave, swim like hell to get out of the break zone. 
And, and then like, as those last waves in the set come in, you can jump up and actually surf them. And so mm-hmm. I would say like your whole team is looking to you right now. What do we do? And so whatever cuts you need to make, uh, wherever you need to invest, do that quickly. And then, uh, realize that businesses are built in a downturn like this. This is the moment. Um, and I've spent like since 2008 preparing myself and, and my company for, this moment and and we're very well prepared to capitalize on it. Um, and so I'd say do what you can to get yourself in that position. And then I uh, don't cower in fear. Like this is the time to be aggressive and to make those moves. Awesome. Uh, Nathan, thanks for joining us today, man. Thanks for having me. So listeners, if you like our podcast, and I know some of you do because you write me and tell me that, and then I send your messages to my mom, like a weirdo, <laughs> uh, please give us a review. Please share us broadly. Uh, you know, slip this to your boss. You know that he or she uh, needs to hear this stuff. So uh, so please pass it on. Do that. Leave it surreptitiously lying around. <laughs> Uh, A quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good each and every week. Brave New Work is, of course, produced by The Ready, where we work, where we actually make a living. Believe it or not, we don't make a living doing this yet. Uh, Where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. And you can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.